Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. We just thank you for your word. We thank you for what it always does. Spirit of the living God, anoint your word. And Father, let every utterance that comes out of me be by your spirit. Let it achieve the purpose for which you have ordained it, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We come to the end of our stop at the Ten Commandments on our journey into God's promises. And today we're doing part six of that teaching and we will take a look at the ninth and the tenth commandment. The ninth commandment um, in Exodus, the 20th chapter and the 16th verse says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In modern, in modern, in modern terms, in, 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 in modern English, you shall not tell lies against your neighbor. It's a commandment against telling lies. And you know, the truth is that lying has become so commonplace in today's society, even amongst Christians, even in the church. It's just one of those things that people just do now without thinking and without thinking that there are any repercussions for it. And you know, because it has become part of life, we have coined terms for it that make it more palatable, more acceptable. Instead of calling it a lie, we have nice sounding names that we call these things, which are really lies. And in his book, uh, Just Ten, uh, Canon J. John uh, talks about some of these terms. And I want to read you uh, a quote from that book. It's a wonderful book. He says, It is at all levels and we have a hundred euphemisms for it. People are economical with the truth. Statistics are massaged. Dates are adjusted. Qualifications are enhanced. Expenses are inflated. Work history is padded. Alibis are invented. Product defects are overlooked. Excuses are manufactured. Promise deadlines slide. Difficult issues are evaded. And you know, when you use those words, it doesn't seem bad. You evade an issue. It's not really a lie. You simply overlooked it. It doesn't sound as bad as a lie. You just padded it. It doesn't sound so bad. You massaged the figures. Now that sounds actually very nice. You were just economical with the truth. Not, not actually a lie. That's what we think. 
But the truth is that there, are, there is the truth and there are lies. And there is nothing in between. And you know, things have been made worse by the internet, the, the World Wide Web, social media. Because that whole world is a virtual world. And the term virtual already speaks for itself. It seems to have a detachment from reality. In that world, things like fake news have become mainstream. You can use all kinds of technology to Photoshop things, which basically is another euphemism for changing the reality of things. I actually feel very sorry for people who believe a lot of what goes on in that world. You really have to take it with a pinch of salt because the reality of that world is that people fake it a lot in that world. And you know, we've been told a lie by the enemy that has made us comfortable with telling lies. We have been told that it is harmless to tell lies. Well, listen to some words that describe what a lie is. And then you tell me if you think it is harmless. Or describe what a lie does. Or who a liar is. Words like deceptive, unreliable, fraudulent, irresponsible, misleading, deceitful, untrustworthy, corrupt, insincere, treachery, devious, dishonest, unfair, unjust, just to name a few. When you hear any of those words, you can't tell me that you think it is harmless. It is not harmless. And you know, the commandment says, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't tell lies against your neighbor. And that instantly brings into our reckoning that the challenge with telling lies is that it affects others. It affects relationships. It affects our neighbors. And of course, we know that our neighbor, we know that from the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor is not the person who lives next to us, but is anybody who can be affected by our actions or our lack of actions. So our neighbor, of course, would start from the closest to us. If you're married, your spouse, your wife or your husband, your children, your parents, your siblings, your friends. Um, and it would now extend to your physical neighbors, those you meet regularly um, on your way to work, uh, your colleagues at work, the other students with you in your class. And the list goes on and on. These are all our neighbors. And the commandment is not to bear false witness or not to tell lies against any of these uh, neighbors. And the reason is because lies will ultimately destroy relationships. 
the foundation on which rich and fulfilling relationships are built is trust. And lies go to the heart of trust in terms of destroying trust. Invariably, when a lie is exposed, trust is destroyed. The reason, for example, why in a lot of the developing world where corruption is rife, the institutions are not trusted at all, is because the lies that fueled the corruption have led to a total breakdown in trust between the public and the institutions. So politicians are not trusted. The police is not trusted. The government is not trusted. Civil servants are not trusted. There's a complete breakdown in the thing that should engender a good relationship trust. And it happens in any relationship where the husband lies to the wife or the wife lies to the husband. It doesn't matter how nicely we, we, we try to cover that lie in terms of giving a nice name. The truth is that it is deception. And when this deception is found out, as usually it is, when it is consistent and persistent, it leads to a breakdown of trust that is usually fatal to that relationship. If it is not fatal to the relationship, it seriously affects the relationship, making it extremely difficult to put that relationship back on track. It is possible, but believe me, it is not a walk in the park because the trust that is the foundation of that relationship has been destroyed by the lies, the deception of the lies. When parents lie to their children, it is irresponsible, unfair and unjust. Irresponsible because their position as parents, they are supposed to give the children a foretaste of what a loving relationship with the Father in heaven is. But when they lie to the children, they irresponsibly throw away what should be, what has been given to them as an assignment. And then it's unjust and unfair on the children because they create a model in the children's head, heads with relation to authority figures. The children start to nurse a mistrust of authority figures because of the irresponsibility of a lying parent, a lying father, or a lying mother. When we fill forms and, or documents incorrectly, it isn't just stretching the figures, it is fraudulent. And when we obtain things fraudulently, we deprive others who have a right to obtain, obtain those things. When we go gossip, when we are purveyors, of irrelevant information, tittle-tattle, information that usually hasn't been authenticated. This is unjust and unfair, and where it involves a friend can, can be treacherous. Where it is slander, it is wicked. Where we are making false and damaging statements about someone, statements that are made to damage a person's reputation. 
You know, when Paul writes to the church in Colossus, in Colossians, the third chapter and the ninth verse, his instruction to them is simple. Don't lie to each other, for you have been stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. He starts by calling a lie a wicked deed. You know, we have nice ways of making sin palatable creating an atmosphere so we can accommodate sin. We color code lies. Some are blue, some are white, some are black. But the truth is that Paul says a lie is a wicked deed. And he says it's a wicked deed that we, we, that we engaged in when we were in our old nature. What is he saying? A mature Christian does not engage in lies. When you find someone who purports to be a Christian who tells lies, that person is at best, at best, a carnal Christian, at best, completely immature. And you know, sometimes we tell lies to the point where our lives become a lie, where we have become what, I, what is called a compulsive liar. At that point in time, it's a deep spiritual problem. For lying spirits have now taken hold of the person. You know, some people lie without even thinking. They lie when it is not even necessary, if you can use the word necessary, to tell a lie. They are not trying to cover up anything. It is just that they are conditioned. They have become compulsive liars. And so they are conditioned to lie. Their souls have been so hardened, callous, that they don't get any conviction whatsoever about telling a lie. You know what Jesus says about lies and, and liars? In John the 8th chapter, the 44th verse, as he's addressing the religious hierarchy who were, in his own words, hypocrites, he says, for you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He had always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There are many things that he says in, 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 that, in that one verse of scripture. He talks about him being a murderer. And because he was going on to talk about lies, we know that he wasn't talking about murder in a physical sense, but we know that he was talking about murdering someone with your tongue. And how many times do we do that? Murder people with our tongue, where we totally dismember a human being with our tongue. As a Christian, you should be uncomfortable in any setting where they have put another human being, was still another brother or sister on the table and everybody has got out their forks and knives and are about to cut the person to pieces and are relishing it. You should know that you are in a gathering of what the Bible calls the sons of disobedience and you need to get out of there as quickly as possible. Jesus says, he was a murderer from the beginning. He says he always hated the truth. There's no truth in him. 
When he lies, it's consistent with his character. He's a liar and the father of lies. But there's always a choice. On, on one side is our heavenly father. On the other side is the father of lies. How do we know which one we're submitted to? Well, if we are made in the image and likeness of God, then the pursuit of truth should be what drives us. Whenever we are in a situation, and don't get me wrong, in our journey towards uh, the image of God, towards the, 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 the Christ-likeness, we make mistakes, we slip up. But then when we slip up, there should be a conviction in our hearts that you shouldn't have said that. You, you shouldn't have told that lie. And wherever possible, we should make amends. But when we lie and our heart rate does not even change, we lie and the smile is fixed. We hold a stare and tell a lie. My days. That person is in a place where the heart has become callous and hardened. And I would suggest that person needs to seek urgently the help of the Holy Spirit. Because something has gone wrong. The Father, Heavenly Father is of course the custodian of truth. Truth himself. The Father of lies. Our actions should tell us where we land. On one side or the other. It would be an interesting experiment. If we could attach a gadget to each person's body and after one month call a gathering of the church and play what was recorded for one month. I am certain if we did that and I, and I announced that it would be done on so-and-so date, I suspect that the numbers attending church would reduce drastically because the truth is that if we all looked closely, we would find now and again that we are sailing too close to the edge. And some would find that they sail right across the edge and fall over. The commandment says, don't bear false witness. Don't tell lies against your neighbor, about your neighbor. The 10th commandment, Exodus 20 verse 17, says you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. The word covet might be part of the challenge. Because sometimes when we find these words, we conveniently hide under an ignorance of the true meaning of the words. To covet means to lust after, to strongly desire. It literally means to pant after. I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of those cartoons where uh, a dog is panting after with his tongue hanging out, uh, panting after something that he so desperately desires. That's what to covet means. And a lot of us are involved in covetousness, sometimes not obviously so. 
It can be very subtle as we measure ourselves against others, measure ourselves against our friends' homes, jobs, lifestyles, cars. It can be very subtle as we measure our wives or husbands against others. We're not lusting after someone else's husband or wife, but we're wishing that our husband or wife would be a bit more like that person's husband or wife. It's a subtle covetousness. Why don't, why does my husband speak in the articulate, fluent way he speaks? Why doesn't my wife look a bit more athletic like she looks? These are so, this subtle covetousness and we must not be unaware of the wiles of Satan. The root of covetousness is in a warped philosophy of life. And it's a philosophy that is, that is all over the place. The philosophy says my life is measured by what I own, how much I own. Jesus himself said it in Luke's gospel, the 12th chapter and the 15th verse. The Bible says and he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, a lot of the companies that are trying to sell us things using the medium of advertising and, and algorithms that tell them what we like, they, they, they wish you would not hear this message I'm preaching to you. It's not good for their business. Because you see, they want us to think that our lives consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. The cars we have, the clothes we wear, the homes we live in, the gadgets we have. Our lives consist in those things. That's why you will find people panting after an iPhone 11. Nothing wrong with the iPhone 10. But because... They are, those who know how to, how to get that spirit into us have used all kinds of advertising. And you know, they're pretty good at what they do. You know, you know the phone will dance in front of you. It will be alluring, lie with me. It's like that fruit saying to Eve, come and eat me. And you're just sitting there and after watching it for a few days and drip, 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 they get into assistance. You decide, I must get an iPhone 11 no matter what it is going to cost me. Nothing wrong with being blessed with an iPhone 11, but not at any cost. These things, the cars, the shoes, the bags, the gadget, the watches, the clothes, all these things, in trying to possess them, they end up possessing you. Because you see, covetousness of these things will always lead to idolatry. And you know, one of the things this pandemic has done, this lockdown, is that it has truly given us a chance to reset our values. And I hope you have done that. I hope you have come to the place that I have come to, where you realize that these things are nice. They are nice to have, but they certainly do not equate with 
the, the meaning of life. They do not determine the value of our lives. Our lives don't consist in the abundance of these things that we own. And if the truth be told, you will agree with me after this lockdown that we own too many of these things. Isn't it interesting, ladies, that all those bags that you wear, to use the phrase that I hate using, dying for, you know? I never say that thing, I'm dying for anything. No, 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 no. I don't want the angel to say, oh, come, come, since you want to die for the bag, come, get the, get the Chanel bag and die. When you get to heaven, they say, but you said you wanted to die for the bag. No, 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 no. But all these things people say they're dying for. The, the Chanel bags, they've all, they've, and nothing wrong with them. I love those, I love nice things. But not at any cost. The bags are there. The shoes are there. The nice car, nobody has seen you in it. It's been packed in your driveway for, all your car has done is a trip to Sainsbury's or Tesco's. That's all your car has done. The suits, the shirts, all these things that we thought we're an indication of who we were. We have found out that they are really nothing. Is it any wonder that Solomon called this pursuit of these things vanity upon vanity? One translation says emptiness upon emptiness. They don't give meaning to life. On the contrary, they will lead to idolatry. In Ephesians, the fifth chapter, this is what Paul says to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, the fifth chapter. He says, for this, you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What was Paul saying? A covetous man has become an idolater. He is in idolatry. And you know from the first commandment that God hates idolatry. So a covetous man, someone whose heart has been seized by greed. These things have become idols. The person is bowing down to them, worshipping them. And you know, you don't have to sing a song to worship it. You don't have to go out to your car and start singing to your car. But your whole mind can worship that car. You know, you worship it, you polish it. You, you, your, your, your greatest expression of joy is driving to go and wash the car you get a certain high when you pass people and they glance at your car. There's something wrong in the heart, my brother. When you carry that bag, my sister, and you come into Jesus' house, you notice how many people looked at the bag. And when people don't look, you're in, you have a downer for the day. There's something wrong, my sister. Those things are, are now owning your heart. They've become idols. And we must be delivered from those idols. We must be at a place where we can enjoy those things. And you know, one of the ways, I'll talk a bit more about the ways to be delivered from these idols. So we just want to make sure that they don't end up owning us. We also must understand that there is a cost to covetousness. There is a cost. The enemy is trying to make us believe that it is harmless, but there is a cost. There's a cost in destroyed relationship. There's a cost in stress, a cost in anxiety, a cost in worry, a cost in unhealthy competition. There is a cost in the debt that is accumulated to own these things. There is a cost in unhappiness in homes. There is a cost 
to covetousness. The Bible says in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, the sixth verse, we read verse five, the sixth and seventh verse. The Bible says, let no one deceive you with empty words. It is empty words for anyone to tell you that there isn't a cost. The Bible says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, these things include the covetousness, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Avoid them. Avoid situations where people will encourage you into the worship or idolatry, into, into idolatry with a lustful desire for these things. Avoid such places. So what then is the antidote to covetousness? What can we do to make sure we don't get caught in this trap? Number one is to have a generous heart. You see, if you can give away anything, then the thing doesn't have you. Because in your mind, you can give it away. If the Lord says to you, give away the phone, just hand over the phone. The Lord says to you, sow the car, just hand over the car. But when the Lord says to you, sow the car, you rebuke the Lord, then you know that the thing has your heart. So just receive it with, an, with open hands, but keep the hands open so that if the Lord wants to take it from your hands and bless somebody, let somebody be blessed. So have a generous spirit. Give things away. One of the ways that I practically make sure that I don't own anything is that a lot of the things I have have a lifespan in my hands. And at some point, I will sow it more likely than not into someone's life. So that that way, I, I don't, I'm not attached to it in a way that the thing, it's a thing. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing else. It's a thing. No matter how fancy, it's a thing. And, and we should treat them like things. So a generous spirit, the, 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 the grace to give into other lives will be an antidote to any of these things owning us and possessing us. The second thing is contentment. You know, if there's one thing anyone should pray for, it is contentment. Because you see, if you're not content, you'll be a frustrated person. Because whatever level you are trying to get to, there is somebody above that level. So when you finally get to that level, and then you notice there's somebody above that level, you will find yourself discontented. And it's a terrible place to be. So contentment. Listen to what the Bible says. Hebrews 13 verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with such things as you. Be content with your husband. Stop looking at her, at her husband. Be content with your own. It's okay. It's okay. You know, it's a bit, you know, it's not, yeah, but it's okay. Be content with your wife. You know, it's okay. If you want to make somebody better in an area, do it in a nice godly way. Encourage them to be better, but not encouraging them to be like this other person. Encourage them to be better on the path that God has set them. Be content. Don't, don't have a wristwatch and somebody's wristwatch won't allow you to enjoy your wristwatch. Your wristwatch is okay. And do you know the thing about life? What you're despising is somebody's blessing. Somebody will throw a Thanksgiving party to have what you're despising. Be content. And the third thing is have a grateful heart. It is difficult 
to be covetous if you if you have a constant heart if, if your heart is constantly grateful to God very difficult to be covetous if you're saying thank you for the car you know thank you for the house you know thank you for for whatever God has blessed you with thank you for this wonderful wife it's very difficult to then have your eyes across the fence on somebody else's when you are grateful to God for what God has given you. That's why the Bible says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In everything give thanks. It also goes on to say in Ephesians, the 5th chapter and the 20th verse, Giving thanks for all things, for all things, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks for all things. Learn to thank God for everything. Even if you aspire for more, um, you desire more. There's nothing wrong with desire. Just let it be a godly desire. Let it be within the boundaries that God has set. Nothing wrong with aspiration. In fact, we need aspiration. But let the aspiration be, be led by the Spirit of God, be instigated by the Spirit of God. Nothing wrong with ambition, but then let it be godly ambition, not a selfish ambition. Uh, and, and the one way to ensure that it doesn't cross the boundary is to constantly be thankful for what God has done. Hallelujah. Now, these Ten Commandments, as I have said almost every Sunday, are not something that's a footnote in a part of the Bible that should be forgotten. No part of the Bible is irrelevant. Every part of the Bible was written for our instruction. And these are instructions for life today. These are the things that keep us steady as we pursue God's call, God's purpose, and God's plans for our lives. These are as relevant today as they were when they were given to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. And I hope that we have not just heard them over this last six weeks, but I hope that we have committed to making sure that they form the foundation of our lives, our value systems, the principles by which we live. Hallelujah. Amen and amen. Amen. Next week, we will find the children of Israel come down. And they, they move on from Mount Sinai where they have received uh, the Ten Commandments and after an experience with God, God asked them to erect an altar to him. Next week, we will be dealing with the power of altars. I am sure you don't want to miss that. Are altars relevant today? Trust me, they are. They are as powerful as they were in the times of the children of Israel if we understand them and understand how to make sure what takes place at altars takes place in our lives uh, for God's plans and purposes. So let's look forward to the power of altars. Hallelujah. As I end, if there's anyone who isn't in a personal relationship with God, how do you live in this uncertain times without God? I think about that almost every day. As I go through some of the challenges of life, some of the uncertainty, as I deal with some of the fear that seeks to come and the many other things that are out there, my constant thought is how on earth does anybody face all these things without God? Well, today you have a chance. 
to allow God to take control of your life. But to do that, you have to invite him into your life. If you would love to do so, I would love to pray with you. If you would just say a simple prayer with me, it's as, as easy as that. Say with me, Heavenly Father, I invite you into my life. I open up my heart for your son Jesus to come into my heart. I give my life to you, Father. I commit myself, Heavenly Father, to living your way. I confess that I haven't done so in times past. I confess I have sinned and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I receive your son Jesus today as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for welcoming me, receiving me into your family, Heavenly Father. I am now a child of yours. You are my Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Fantastic. Welcome to the family. 